and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. Um, I'm going to come clean straight off the bat and say that I'm recording this intro whilst I'm fairly sick, so if the tone is not as jubilant as usual, that would be why, um, and also explains why I'm going to keep this very short. Um, Luckily, I was in rude health during the interview, so bear with the croak just for a moment. My guest this week is Natalie Sampson, a chameleon of the film industry who's held roles at Women in Film and TV, the post-production house Clear Cut, and currently as head of production at Interfilm, a really fantastic educational charity. Uh, I think Natalie's brilliant and so enthusiastic about the work that she does with Interfilm. Uh, we also talk about her stint on The Funny Farm, a Kiwi TV show, uh, how to best manage being freelance, and the value of a support network. This is episode 39 of Best Girl Grip. So I grew up in, I was born in New Zealand mm-hmm. and grew up there and then so I did, I actually came to the UK for a year after school just to like hang out for a bit <laughs> and then went back and did a communications degree at a university in Auckland in New Zealand. And that, I thought that was quite cool, actually, because the pathway for me was always going to be telly. Um, but that made me learn, like, media studies and the history of, like, the Fourth Estate and the responsibility of journalism. And so there was, like, all this hardcore theory stuff, which was quite difficult for me, like, all those big essays. But that kind of responsibility of the media and responsibility of entertainment and storytelling was really, really cool. And then alongside of that, we did things like uh, PR and journalism and websites and TV and radio and things. And then my final year did a major in TV production and we did live studio. We made our own documentaries. We did all sorts of cool little drama things as well. So yeah, it was wicked. It was nice. And you say you always knew. Where did that certainty come from? Literally watching David Attenborough when I was like four. <laughs> so yeah, I, I literally remember being glued to the telly, watching David Attenborough, and I was literally four, just watching him go into these all, all these amazing places and seeing all these amazing animals and filming it, and that was his job. And I was like, that is the coolest job ever. Mm. <laughs> that's the coolest thing to do. He gets to hang out with animals, and that's awesome. And did you know, did you have a sense of like what that job was? Obviously not at the age of four, but growing up, did you kind of then think, okay, well, that's presenting and, you know, did that I mean, become I was, apparent to you? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Like, I was the typical young, like, teenage girl kind of, oh, my God, I could so be an actress. <laughs> um, and then quickly realised that I'm really not that good at being turned down all the time, <laughs> over and over again. Um, and then I actually wasn't a very good actor. <laughs> But then documentary has always really fascinated me. Like I or I I find other people fascinating. I find the world around us fascinating. I'm a massive kind of voyeur. Like I think people are really interesting and the world is fascinating how things work and how things interact and all that. So the stories of other people have always been really interesting to me. So doc to so docs was always kind of the pathway. But then you have to take the jobs, don't you, right? So I did a lot of probably factual television and fact in t- television that okay. I probably wouldn't put on my CV. As like a researcher, what what kind of roles were you So doing? started off, like did the straight old route, had to start off as an intern, 
went to a PA, then became a PM, then started doing a bit more producing based stuff and just literally did the tried and tested route of straight production. Um, But that was great because like I got as a PA and an intern, you get to do everything and be on everything. And New Zealand crews were probably a little bit more loosey-goosey than, like, we don't really do risk assessments. Right. <laughs> maybe easier to sort of move your way up. Easy to move your way up and also easy just to get opportunities, I think. So I felt really lucky in that. And also, because there was so much telly being made that it was like, there was always another job going. I mean, there was always times when you're, like, stressed about rent and all that kind of thing. But, yeah, it just felt like... And I've always kind of felt believed that you're only as good as your last gig, right? So if you work really hard and you prove yourself and you're organised and you do the job and you go the extra mile and you don't whinge about making a cup of tea, then people like that. And if people like you, then they want you on the next one and they want you on the next one and the next one and the next one. So it was like, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to make the, I'm going to do the best I can for these people. Make it fun, make it enjoyable, because it's often stressful, right? (laughs) And it's really long hours, and it's weird hours, and you just have to, and you find yourself in really odd situations. So it's like, how do we, how do we make this fun? And that kind of just worked for me. And like, this kind of like the New Zealand attitude, just get stuck in. They call it the number eight wire thing. Like, if you've got a bit of number eight wire, you can fix anything. You can get anything done. (laughs) I think it's a real Kiwi thing. (laughs) (laughs) I've mentioned it a couple of times here, and everyone kind of looks at me. Yeah, totally. But it was just that, and there was opportunities, and I just I wasn't shy to go out and grab them. Mm. And did you have like a mentor or anyone that you were looking up to for like, okay, that's how they did it and, you know, I'm going to try and follow that path? I mean, I had stuff that I like programs that I was like, I really want to work on stuff like that. So that was a, a way that I sort of walked a little bit, like that was kind of the path where yeah. I walked. But there was this one woman, like the first ever job that I worked on was a TV series called Funny Farm. So basically there was this really famous dog in New Zealand who was... Um, on all the TV shows, he was in all the commercials. And it turned out that that owner of that dog owned loads of animals for film and TV. Cool. And he was like a dog whisperer as well. So we followed him around on like a 10 half hour series. Just, and we voiced all of his animals. And But it just, it was one of these programs that never finished and never finished and never finished. So we, we lost our producer, we lost our director, we lost the second producer, and then it ended up being that we were like, the exec at the company was like, we have to finish this, and you were the last man standing. I was like, I'm a PA, mm. what am I supposed to do? So I did four days a week on a um, live panel show, and then two nights a week doing post-production directing on the funny farm. And because I was the only person left, she was the one that had to keep me through and look at my story structure and look at the way I was constructing things. So she was a great mentor in that aspect. So because we, I got time with this immensely successful exec who would sit down and go, okay, let's look at this edit. Why is it working? Why is it not working? What can we do? So that like that kind of stuff is, is really valuable mm-hmm. because you don't know what you're doing, do you? Well, exactly, I was going to say, like, did you ever feel like you had imposter syndrome? That's quite like a millennial now term. But I wondered if you felt like, oh my gosh, am I ready for this? And how, how are you? I still do. Yeah? I absolutely still do. Yeah, and I think loads of people do. Like, I don't think I'm an odd person in that. Like, that was definitely super scary. And I was just like, but it was so busy because I was just actually doing six days, well, four days, two nights a week. So I was just like, I just had to be, the job has to get done. But then, yeah, I don't think that imposter syndrome ever goes. It's like, am I 
built for this and you get that thing in your gut where you're like oh my god I've got I'm just going to get through it and get it done and I think that's the way of getting through that imposter yeah, syndrome yeah like, breaking it into chunks I don't know that works for me to sort of like making it as small and doable as possible exactly and it's like if you look at the big task that's just it's it's absolutely terrifying and you know I've worked on some massive live tv shows and massive events and if you do if you look at that and go yeah we've got to deliver that by that date then you're just never going to start so you have to go okay what's the end result and then what's the step back from that I always start at the end I find that's the best place to start. Mm-hmm. Start at the end. What do you want to do and what do you want to make and how do you want it to look and what's involved? And then you can pick the pieces back from that. But yeah, imposter syndrome, I'll, yeah, I've still got it. And at what point did you come over to the UK? Uh, the last job I ever worked on in New Zealand was I was the producer of Top of the Pops New Zealand. Oh my God, that's so cool. I love the reaction it gets here because it was such a huge thing over here. Right, right? yeah. Like, and the massive studio and the massive stars. But, like, kind of pair that down by about 100. <laughs> and you've probably got the New Zealand little studio and the small selection of New Zealand musicians. Right, okay. But the Beads would send us their videos each month. So we'd get, like, the Snow Patrol videos, which would intercut with our New Zealand uh-huh. stuff. Um, but I did that for, for, like, two years. And if you're... God, that was really key. Two years? But, when you, you know, we were... Filming as live on a Friday, editing on a Saturday for a six o'clock on air right. time on a Saturday night. And by the time you do that week in, week out for two years, you're just done. Yeah. Like, and so I was literally burnt out because it was also incredibly social because it was a combo of the TV world and the music world mm-hmm. together. So double the parties. And I literally... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, I'm done, man. I'm going to kill myself if I don't leave. And it was also just time to leave New Zealand. Mm. London was always in my sights. It was always I was always going to end up here. So it was just it was just a matter of finding the right time. And also for me, what I felt was that coming to, if I was going to come to London, I needed a credit on my CV that someone would understand. And Top of the Pops, BBC, people mm. understand that. It was still hard to get work here, but like that was way more of an in than me saying I worked on The Funny Farm, or do you know what I mean? Or some show that no one had ever heard of. So you didn't come over with a job or anything set up, you kind of moved over and then was like, okay, now what? Yeah, well, I took two years off. I went travelling for a couple of years. Like, I really needed to, like, slow down. So I went travelling in Central and South America for a couple of years and then ran out of money and my friend was getting married in London and I was like, well, now's as good a time as any to come. But I was really lucky. Like, my sister was living here and she worked in the industry as well. And loads of my friends, while I was sort of travelling, had, had migrated over this way. So I didn't have a job, mm. but I had places to stay and couches to doss on. And so I knew I didn't have to rush too hardcore. Yeah. And I could get the lay of the land with some ends. And did you move straight back into producing once you did start working over here again? Or did you kind of take your career in a different direction? No, I kind of stuck with what I knew. But no one would give me a producing job here. Like, Why? Because I didn't have I didn't have English credits. Like there was nothing on my CV, even top of the pops. Because I thought with top of the pops, I was like, uh huh, no problem. But even with that, I hadn't done anything for four for ITV or the BBC, and in the TV world, that was that was really tricky. So I was just really lucky. I got on with a really small production company, and they needed someone who could do a bit of everything. So they'd seen that I could be a producer. 
And so they knew that side of it. So they knew they were getting bang for their buck mm. for a small production company. So I ended up producing, um, researching, APing, everything for all of the shows that they did. And it just worked out because it meant that I got like a succession of credits really quickly. That's something that feels like a bit of a relic of kind of, you know, when, when TV used to be its own thing and now mm. there's so much more crossover, I feel like that perhaps wouldn't happen. Like you could have credits in something quite different or maybe not for a mainstream broadcaster, but if you've produced a music video or something like maybe totally. they'd be more willing to take you on. I mean, I hope that mm. that's the way it is. It's the way it feels it is, which is way more exciting and, and interesting because the more diversity that you have in your production team or whatever, mm that's when you get new ideas and new ways of going. But you must have accrued quite a lot of like different skill sets. You know, as you say, you, you built up quite a roster of credits Like once you did start working over here. Like, did you feel you know, like you, you could transfer them to anything that you wanted to do? It's a really funny one, because I was actually I was talking about this the other day. I was like, I've got no transferable skills. <laughs> and everyone was like, well, you, but you're a project manager, right? So you, you can organise people, you can get people to do a job together, you can take something from initial starting stage and then you can deliver a project or whatever whatever the product is it doesn't actually matter right like I think if you're a producer you have great people skills hopefully um you're a great organizer and you have an ability to build a team and because I was saying to someone the other day I was like if you're a good producer you know which other experts to bring in because I can't direct don't Put a camera in my hand ever like just really don't don't put me in front of the camera and definitely don't ask me to edit like that's just but I know amazing people who do that and so it's about bringing that team together and going getting them excited about the common goal so you can deliver a product and whether that product's a film or a short film or a tv show or a block of cheese like it do you know what I mean it's the same yeah it's that same process so I yeah I do have transferable skills and I'm I'm so happy to put my hand up and go I know nothing about that like I've always liked asking questions mm. I always had a really bad saying that I don't trust anyone who doesn't ask questions <laughs> you know at every interview you always have to have because you know I hate that silent moment at the end where they're like do you have any questions and then you're like no I just feel like that that could like blow an interview for you. Exactly, because, if, you know, if you're in an interview, right, you are applying for a job, but they're also looking at you. Mm. So it's like, it's a, I think a job, in any sense, is a two-way street. There has to be mutual benefit. It's not about an employer holding mm. all the strings. It's a two-way street. So those questions and those intrigue and finding out what you know and going, like, we just brought a new member onto the team at my current job. And we work in the education sector, so we put film in the classroom. And she has come into the production team, but she comes from a teaching background. And she is so valuable to what we're doing, and she brings all of these ideas that I have no idea about. And she said to me, I'm a bit worried that I don't have enough production experience. I'm like, that's totally cool. That's where you and I will work well together, because I've got the production experience, You've got some production experience, but you've got that education experience. You've dealt with teachers. You've been a teacher. Us working together is where it's actually going to work. Mm. So let's talk about Interfilm, as you just brought it up, and, yeah. kind of, and track back. Yeah, working at the, the intersection of education and film, how did you find yourself working there? So I was just looking for a new job. I was looking for the new thing. Mm. Um, and I'd heard of Interfilm throughout the years of what they were doing, and I was just trawling. I was trawling for jobs that were 
in production in some way that I was quite like the charity sector. I also quite like my, I've got to the stage where I like my life and I like my free time a bit. And so working as a freelancer is really tricky. Um, working on a big feature didn't really float my boat in terms of like finding that elusive life work-life balance. And then also TV shows are the same, like you're being flown away for long periods of time. And while it's romantic at some points, it's actually tough. So I was like, wow, what is there? Where can I be doing that? And so there was just the job came up at Interfilm and the search and it was a head of production. And that really appealed to me because we make content for teachers to use in the classroom, free resources. We're BFI um, funded, which is amazing. We're super lucky to have that. But as a teacher, you can come onto our website and you can go, I'd really like to teach about literacy. I really want my students to understand characters and character development. And there will be a downloadable resource with an excerpt from a film with a PowerPoint presentation and something they can put on their board at that minute to teach that. And I just think that's really cool. That's really cool. So we did a thing, there was a film that came out recently called Wonder Park, and it was an animation which had a roller coaster in it. So our learning team turned that into an education lesson about physics. And so they've got these kids making their own roller coasters out of cardboard and then rolling a marble down it. And, you know, that that's a lesson right there about friction, about gravity, about all sorts of stuff. But because it's they've watched a small clip from the film, it gets them excited. So it's like covert teaching, which yeah. I think is really cool. And it's part of the work Interfilm do almost rebranding what video content can mean in the classroom. Because when I was at school, there used to be, you know, some holidays and at Christmas, you used to get stuck in front of a TV when the teacher didn't want to teach. Yeah. And, you know, that... that kind of doesn't feel like the case anymore like it video content is more and more necessary in a way to engage students and is it is, is that part of the process like saying actually you know film and and video can be really you know educational yeah absolutely and i think there's a lot there's so much that you can learn like uh, even just you know we encourage filmmaking in schools as well and provide resources for teachers to do so then we've got these kids making their own stop, mo- stop motion animations they're doing claymation i mean they're, they're so talented and they're so clever and they've got an ipad or a tablet in the classroom and they're using that to understand how things progress and what what sound why sound is important and it's great for kids with like autism or other learning difficulties because it's a different way of engaging and I just I think it's wicked I get really excited by it and we go and do some stuff in schools and it's it's just nice it's really nice to watch it's really cool is there anything that surprised you about the job that perhaps you weren't expecting we yeah a slight one little thing so we do uh we make content for young people as well the young people are the face of their content so it's called get into film it's like a youtube channel with twitter and all that sort of stuff and we have a group of young reporters aged between like sort of 13 and 18 and we get them to go and interview big stars for all of the movie junkets we get them to go to screenings we get them to go to festivals we get them to do in-depth interviews with some cool person or some cool actor or director or whatever and these kids are so talented and so bright and so engaged and like we were just, I was doing an interview yesterday and this young girl was interviewing an actor in Scotland and we were talking through the questions together beforehand and how she was going to conduct the interview and 
then to go, oh, but then if I ask question, this question and he maybe answers this way, then I could probably go down that pathway with him and have that conversation. Or we could do this or we could do that. I don't, I'm just, I'm impressed by them. I'm, re- I'm, I'm more impressed by them than I thought I would be. Mm. And they're go-getters, right? And they're fingers and pies and they're making their own films and they've found themselves an agent and they've got their own channel and they're doing all of these things. And I'm, I'm just, I'm way more impressed than I thought I'd be. And that's that's me actually being a bit crap because I, sh- I should have known. But yeah, I'm just impressed by the younger generation in terms of the way that they approach things, their confidence, their ability to get around things, the way that they group together and the way that they're, you know, like the whole climate change movement at the moment, like standing up and having a voice is mm-hmm. super cool. Yeah, it's been driven by young people, it feels like. It sounds like a lot more hands-on with the, like, young people than perhaps, you know, it's not just about you kind of, you know, producing the content and getting it out there. You know, it's, it sounds like a dialogue with, you know, what they can get out of it and what they want. Absolutely. That, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And especially I'll get into Film Channel. It's, you know, we will sit down and we'll go, okay, so you've just seen this film and it's more my team than me doing this. I just do it when, when we're low or when we've got too much on. But, you know, the producers at Interfilm are sitting down with the young person, having watched the film together, and then go, they're going, what did you get out of it? And that'll be totally led by them. And they will be the ones that are putting the questions. We'll help them and mould them and try and get them indifferent. But what is so interesting is that time and time again, these actors are like, I've never had that question before. They're in a junket for two days. They're bored out of their brain. It's got to be done. Press has got to be done. And it's important. But they're getting the same questions. Mm-hmm. And then now young reporters come in and they're like, so I was thinking about, oh, when I was watching a film, I was thinking about this. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Completely different perspective. Totally different perspective. And that's what they should be doing. Young people are watching our channel, so it should be with young people presenting. Has there been something that you found particularly challenging about the role? The people at Interfilm are super passionate, like super passionate. And so sometimes it's they're like, we could do this and 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 we could do this. I'm like, that is amazing. And if we had the resources, we could absolutely do that. So it's just about going, let's focus on one thing first. Let's see how we get along with this and let's see where that can that can branch out because stifling people's creativity and ideas and positivity and enthusiasm is really. I find it really hard, it's difficult, because you want to just, like, let them go. But mm. sometimes I think, focus on one thing, then go to the next, and then see how we go. I don't know. I mean, what I would, I'd love to see more teachers accessing our resources and knowing about us, just because it's such a cool thing for them to, mm. to access. But that's standard everywhere. How do you get a voice in a busy market? I mean, every organisation, every company has the same, same issue. And time, I would imagine, is probably the biggest thing, right? Because I, from my mum used to work in secondary school. I went to a secondary school, you know, but I just think teachers are often just trying to keep their head above water yeah. and, you know, do do what they have to do on a day-to-day basis and yeah. don't often have the, the, the time or the capacity to think, you know, about what more they could be doing, you know, through no fault of their own, through the fact that that's Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's a conversation that we have at Interfilm all the time. Mm-hmm. Teachers are time poor in a massive way. So how do we help them with that? How do we give them stuff that doesn't take up a whole lot of their time? Because if you say to them, if you say to a teacher, oh, so here's this teaching resource, but you have to watch the whole film to be able to teach it. I mean, this is no way. Mm. There's just no way. So yeah, it's a conversation we have a lot. If we want to put film in the classroom, we have to make it easier for the teachers to get hold of. 
Um, and let's come back to you. You, you were at Clear Cut Pictures uh, yes. before that, and they are a post house. Yes. And what were you doing there, and how long were you there for? So I was their marketing and communications manager. Um, I had left my previous job. I was, again, just chatting to all the people I knew and seeing what was going on. And I knew Rowan Bray, the MD of Clearcut. Hmm. And I was just sort of chatting to her. I like getting advice from people. And I just go, you know, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And what do you think I should be doing? You know me. Where will I fit? Well, how would that go? Um, and she goes, oh, why don't you come work for me? And I was like, oh, okay. I totally wasn't expecting it. And because she, she'd just taken over Clearcut. And she was just like, we just don't, we're making incredible content we're working on incredible programs and doing incredible things but people don't know about it and so marketing and comms was not really my best my background mm. but it's about knowing the market right so i knew all of the trade shows i knew all of the publications most people now can handle a twitter feed and a mm. facebook feed and a linkedin page and... you'd be surprised <laughs> And also, you know, I've worked in the TV industry for such a long time, so it, it didn't feel too much of a stretch. Like, it definitely, I had to learn some new skills pretty quickly. Um, but to be able to promote cool work and cool documentary series and say, look what we're doing and look what why this is different and putting ourselves out there a little bit. And it was a lot of events-based stuff as well. It's like, you know, supporting the clients of Clearcut to get the word out, make their experience at... Um, at the post house mm. the best it possibly can be because post is a really fiercely competitive industry mm. so is it more b2b than b2c you know because because i would imagine that there's not a massive market for telling people that you know we worked on the post-production of this film but as you say for kind of client retention client retention absolutely and getting new clients on board and also supporting the clients that we did have so i would go to a client and go hey i'm going to promote your program for free is that cool and they'd be like Yes, <laughs> please, please tell do. Me more. Because the networks don't have big marketing budgets, mm. so for that, for me to go, look, we've got these many followers over these different platforms. I could potentially get an article in Broadcast Magazine, or we could do something like that, or we could do a showcase at a trade show, or anything like that. It was definitely business to business, mm. but that, but that helped the clients that we had anyway, as well as helping us. So it was a win-win on both sides. And what was it like going into a role that was like? completely brand new there was no benchmark like was that quite exciting you were you were basically creating the role oh, it was really great I mean Rowan and I worked together really closely on on how that would look and and what the brand was and what we wanted to be seen like in the market and what we were proud of and what we wanted to be promoting but it was it was actually a great opportunity to brand something and to like figure out what the language was around that I find that interesting in terms of strategy but there hadn't really then been enough time or resources, again, to put to it. So anything I did was always like a massive tick. It was hard to do something bad. Like when you're in that kind of role, you go, where am I sitting against my compatriots or my competitors or whatever you want to call them? Where do I sit and how do we feel that we sit in that market? Like, are we in M&S or are we in H&M? Or where do we see that going, and how do we want to pitch ourselves? So then you can you can do a compare and contrast. Mm. But I mean, I just we just you just gave it you just threw as much as you could and see where you, see where you got to. What did you love most about that role? I love working with all of the other clients because again, like it was harking harking back to my production days, and I go, oh god, because I I could relate to them. I've been in their shoes. I've been on those shoots. I've lost that drive. I you know. <laughs> 
Because by the time you get to post, you are knackered, right? You've run out of money. Mm-hmm. Everything that's gone wrong has gone wrong, and there's probably you know that there's still a bit more to go on the horizon, and you've probably run out of time as well. So I could really relate to them and go, oh well, I'll help you with this bit, or do that. And they were making some cool content too. Um, and you also had a job at W uh, Women in Film and TV. Yes, WFTV. So what were you doing there? So I was there for about four and a half years, and by the end of it, I think my title was um, awards and events producer, and that was great. Because, like, as you've seen, like, we're probably going, why is she on this podcast? Because she's never worked in film. But that was, like, film university. So we put on two events a week for women working in the film and TV industry. And it was, a lot of women were going, oh, my God, it's the film university I never had. Because we'd get in guest speakers or we'd expose them to kit or we'd give them a CV workshop or we'd have a panel discussion where we talked about the relationship between a DP and a director or we'd talk about how to get your film funded or what about um, the festival circuit, how do you deal with distribution, all of that kind of thing. So while I was putting on all of these events, I was learning more and more myself about the industry, which was really cool. And it's, you'd start to go, oh, we've talked about this, and we've talked about casting, so let's, why don't we take that further down and why don't we look at things like self-taping and the importance of that because that's the new way that things are being done. So then if we're looking at self-taping, then we need to look at like mobile phone capture and how important that mm. is and how useful that can be. And then we need to look at, oh, right, we'll probably need to look at marketing or, you know, so it was like this cool little pathway that we could travel on as a kind of university. And it was two events a week. There was loads on. It was really busy. I got to go to lots of cool festivals um, and just met so many amazing women who were just trying to forge their way in a super competitive industry. And we're doing some great stuff. We're doing loads of independent stuff and doing their own stuff. And it was just, it was wicked. I loved it. I'm interested to know, obviously, that's quite a, like a formal network where you, I don't know if it was the case when you were there, but where you pay in a membership and kind of get lots of benefits. And um, But then you spoke about kind of knowing people and asking them what they think that you would be good at. Yeah. And can you speak to the value of having both that professional and personal network of people whose opinion you trust? It's so important. So, I mean, I think Women in Film as an organisation is brilliant. And, you know, they do have a membership fee, but it's it's minuscule for what you get. Um, And I think it's a really valuable thing. And that that gives you so many benefits as that formalised network. And there are, like, other organisations who do things in a similar way, not just for women, but for all sorts of things. But, I mean, I've got a WhatsApp group with three other women. It's called Women in Wine. And each of us work in the industry in some way or another but very different but we are an incredible support network for each other we can go on there and we can bitch about the bad day that we've had or we can go I don't know what the hell I'm doing what am I where am I going what am I doing where where, where am I meant to be and each of us in our own ways go oh no remember that thing that you did and that was quite useful why don't you go and speak to that person and do that sort of thing and so it has become and I don't that's not the only one I've got like it's wider and it goes a lot wider. Like I was on the um, mentoring scheme at Orion Film and that's a huge network of women who are all prepared to help each other because we've just got this combined with this shared thing that we did. That Women and Wine WhatsApp group has saved me on so many different levels just because I could go home with my husband and talk about the film industry but he wouldn't, he wouldn't get it. Yeah. Just wouldn't get it. And bless him, he tries, he tries <laughs> as hard as he possibly can but, you know, he's a musician and a chef. 
think it's such a different, it's a different, yeah, it's a different yeah. world. So with these three women, I just go, hey guys, I'm wondering about this. What do you think? And they'll go, oh, I think this, I think this. And their opinions aren't necessarily the same, but I know that I can call on them and I know that they'll get it. And I know that they'll support me. And like they'll, we love sending each other good news. They're like, oh my God, I've just gone to the ski. And we're like, yes, go women. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, so yeah, I, they're so important. I'm also interested to know, as someone who has spent quite a large portion of their career freelancing, um, how you sort of planned for that but also maybe what advice you would give to other people that are currently in that kind of working situation? I mean, I think it, it can be really hard, but I think you've just got to take the leap. Like if you if you want to be a freelancer, you need to know that you, you're, you're pricing yourself at value to cover yourself for the year. So estimate that you're not going to work a full year, so therefore make sure that your day rate or your weekly rate or whatever is going to, they say you work six months a year and that's going to cover you for what you need to do. Just protect yourself, plan yourself budget-wise and just do it because it's going to give you more opportunities. It really is. Like, and I think, I mean, I love being in-house now just because I'm at that point where I've got the mortgage and, I've, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I, I did love being a freelancer because I never knew what was around the corner and that was exciting. And you're learning something new, like whether it's film or doc, or high-end drama now, like the, the new high-end drama is amazing. You are learning a, part, a new part of your craft, you're learning a new way of working, you're exploring a different story, and that's what that's what's cool and interesting. So I think if you have the ability to calm your nerves when you don't have the jobs and just go, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, and maybe I have to take a job that I don't like for a little bit to pay the rent. That's totally cool. You just don't put it on your CV. You just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because that's what everyone does. Like, I remember reading such a cool story about um, a guy a couple of years ago who won the short film Oscar. And he worked at a corporate commercial company, which he didn't enjoy, didn't like. And it was just like it wasn't as hard and soul. But because he earned enough there, he could make a short film and he could time it when he wanted and fit it in around his life. And then he won a blooming Oscar for it. And like you've got to take the both sides of it. You're never going to work on everything that you absolutely love. And there's stuff that you're going to be like, oh, I could have done so much better on that or whatever. But I think the freelancing market can be really exciting and can be really fun. Is there a myth that you particularly want to bust about working in the film industry? You don't have to rely on nepotism. You don't have to know lots of people because I think I think that's we're really struggling at the moment. I think with only a certain group of people are getting the roles. But I think if you if you work hard and you show willing and you have enthusiasm and you're prepared to go that extra mile, that will take you to the next job and the next job and the next job. Getting the foot in the door is tricky, I totally get it. But you know, if someone sends me an email and a CV and goes, hey, look, I if it's, a, if it's a well-crafted email that says, I have these skills, I know what you do, I like this aspect of what you do and I'd really like to learn more of it, is there any opportunity for me to come and hang out with you for a day? And so on the, you know, that that holds a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. When you get the email where, you, where they go, where they've got 15 credits and they're like, oh yeah, I thought I might apply for this. I'm just not, I'm just not interested mm-hmm. in that. Whereas if you show willing and interest and passion, that's going to get you off over the line way more. And finally, is there a, a film by a woman director, it can be short, it can be feature length, it can be old, or it can be new, that you've seen that 
you think deserves more attention? Um, yes. So <laughs> one of my women in wine ladies is a, an amazing first time feature director called Georgia Paris. And because he's such a beautiful, incredibly talented and thoughtful and I love her process and I think she's pretty good. So she, her feature, her first feature film, Mari, came out, oh God. This, earlier this year. Earlier this year. I've released it. Yes, exactly, because it was at the um, London, Film London Film Festival last year and it's available to watch on Curzon Home Cinema, on Amazon or iTunes. You just need to go to Mari Feature, her website, and it's a beautiful piece of work. Mm. It's a dance film which is so wrought with emotion and beautifully shot, like just stunning. And the journey of the lead character is just brilliant. And I've, I've never seen dance done in such a story way, like a beautifully crafted story. Yeah, like inserted so like seamlessly with the narrative. Like yes. Like it really served the narrative. It wasn't so just So much about... more eloquent than no. I am. <laughs> but like, I, I've never seen anything like it either. And I was, I really, when I saw it at LFF, I was like, why, why am I so struck by that? And yeah. I like really thought about it a lot. Yes. Um, and I think it's that, is that I've never seen, you know, I've, I've seen stuff where there's choreography or, you know, there's dance numbers and yeah. it happens, you know, quite separately, but yeah. never so interwoven in a way, as you say, emotionally raw and it feels like the dance is saying something about the character's yeah. kind of state of mind. Yeah, and to have that done so well on a tiny budget, on, like, the shortest shoot you can ever imagine in the world, is pulling people together. Um, it's testament to her and the producer. Like, what a duo in terms of what they do and how they, that's that's a real art of going, you know what, I'm going to tell you what this film is and you're going to love it and therefore you're going to work on it. You're going to want to work on it. And I'm, I'm like obviously super proud, like she's one of my mates, but she deserves everything that's, that's coming to her in terms of that film and absolutely watch that film because you'll be, if you're a cynic about dance film, you'll be changed after watching that. Thank you so much, Natalie. This has been amazing. No problem. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you particularly enjoyed this interview, I also recommend my interview with Emma Duffy, the producer who worked on the film that Natalie recommended called Mari. Or you can listen to all 38 other episodes on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.